EM Cases EM Quick Hits podcast, where our team of experts and educators bring you clear, concise, and condensed practice-changing knowledge on all those EM topics you may not be totally comfortable with. Cases, the latest evidence, procedural tips and tricks, pitfalls to avoid, and the key take-home points and references on the EM Cases website. Quick, let's get on with it. EM Cases is part of SHREMI, the Schwartz Reisman Emergency Medicine Institute. That's the nonprofit organization dedicated to improving EM care through high quality research and education. The opinions expressed on this podcast are intended for general information and educational purposes only and should not be used to diagnose, treat, or prevent any medical condition, nor should they be used as a substitute for medical advice from a qualified practicing physician. Unless stated otherwise, the opinions expressed by the hosts or guests are made in their individual capacity, not on behalf of the institute nor medicine cases. A cure for COVID? I feel like we've been through this before. A press release proclaiming a miracle cure, but the data isn't published. People start prescribing the drug. And by the time the data comes out, it's too late. Opinions are already formed. So let's talk coltracine for COVID. The big new trial is the Cole Corona trial. I will note there was a previous RCT published back in July, and the results were promising, with fewer people deteriorating on a clinical scale, but it was a small, open-label trial, so definitely not practice-changing. The design of the Cole Corona trial is great. It's a randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial. They were looking at outpatients who they thought were high risk for COVID, so you had to be at least 40 years of age, plus one other risk factor, things like obesity or diabetes. And most of these risk factors make sense to me, but they counted a fever of 38.4 as high risk. So a 41-year-old with normal vital signs and a fever makes it into this trial, and I'm not sure that makes sense to me. The majority of patients had COVID confirmed by PCR, but early in the trial, there was a shortage of tests, so not everybody was tested, and we'll come back to that later. They compare coltracine, 0.5 milligrams twice a day for three days, and then daily for 27 days, that's right, a full month of treatment. They compared that to placebo. They had planned to enroll 6,000 patients, but they stopped after 4,488, And we'll come back to that as well. The primary outcome was a composite of death and hospitalization due to COVID. And we'll come back to that as well. But the most important finding, this was a negative trial. There was no difference in the primary outcome. There was no difference in death. There was no difference in hospitalization due to COVID. There was no difference in mechanical ventilation. So I guess the question is, why are people even talking about this study? Why is there a press release proclaiming that this was a miracle cure? Well, on a secondary analysis where they excluded patients without confirmed COVID, they did get a statistically significant result. Now, mortality still wasn't different, although that wasn't actually clear from the press release. And despite the press release talking about massive improvements, like 50% improvements in mortality, you should know the absolute numbers. Mortality was 0.2% with coltracine, 0.4% with placebo. That wasn't statistically significant, but even if it was, we're talking about an NNT of like 500 And predictably, of course, adverse events were higher with coltracine, mostly due to diarrhea. So this was a negative trial. In any other time, we wouldn't even dream of prescribing coltracine based on this data. But does the pandemic change things? Should we pay attention to that secondary outcome? Keeping people out of hospital is really important right now, and and often we have to make an educated guess based on the best available data. But there are some major issues with this trial that tell me that coltracine should not be used at this time. First of all, the trial was stopped early, not because any endpoint was reached, but just because the investigators were excited about the data and wanted to share it with the world. 
That degree of optimism, especially about a negative trial, suggests that we need to be wary that bias is a little bit more likely. However, more importantly, the primary outcome is what makes me skeptical of this data. Composite outcomes are always somewhat problematic because they can conflate outcomes that aren't nearly as valuable as each other. In this study, it seems pretty clear to me that mortality is not changing. The only apparent change after their statistical gameplay is a decrease in hospitalizations due to COVID. And if you were listening closely there, you might have heard the problem. We've talked at length before about the problems with disease-specific mortality. They did the exact same thing here. They didn't look at all-cause hospitalizations. They don't even report how many people in each group were admitted to hospital. They only counted you if your admission diagnosis was COVID. That automatically biases the results. It assumes that the treatment can't cause harm. But we know that coltracine causes a lot of harm. If somebody was admitted to hospital because of dehydration due to diarrhea, that, they weren't counted in this data. If coltracine caused acute renal failure or rhabdo or any other side effect, they weren't counted in this data. That's obviously completely unfair. For all we know, and again, they don't actually report the overall hospitalization numbers, but for all we know, overall hospitalization might have actually been higher in the coltracine group. So bottom line, this was a negative trial. Their primary outcome was negative. There were no changes in any of the important outcomes. Unfortunately, it was stopped early. So maybe it was underpowered. Maybe there is a tiny benefit here. But the available data does not suggest a benefit. There is a clear increase in adverse events with coltracine. This one is unfortunate, but easy. There's really no role for coltracine in the treatment of COVID-19 as of February 2021. Or another way of saying the same thing is that there actually may be a role for coltracine for COVID-19 in these ambulatory patients with risk factors, but this study was not able to answer the question. Either way you look at it, we do not recommend giving coltracine to patients who you suspect have COVID pneumonia. All right, next up, we have a new EM quick hitter. One of our residents at University of Toronto EM, Dr. Victoria Myers, a rising star who I've been talking to about the possibility of her doing a bi-monthly residence EM quick hit, which I hope comes to fruition. Now, she gave us an outstanding educational rounds presentation on the rationale and evidence for using bicarb in cardiac arrest. So I asked her if she could give us the lowdown on bicarb in cardiac arrest in five minutes on EM quick hits and she kindly obliged. Here's Victoria Myers. You're sweating under your PPE in the recess bay, running a PEA arrest on a 50-year-old male patient. Your team is providing excellent CPR, you've given epi, and you've got your ultrasound out. And there is no clear etiology for his arrest. And he's been down for 40 minutes. Your colleague walks in and they say, why not give an amp of bicarb? So you're standing there, you look at your patient and you think about them and their family, and you wonder, is there any evidence for giving bicarb and cardiac arrest? Is the pH the root problem here? So let's talk about bicarb. Bicarb use comes from the first ACLS guidelines in 1974. It is in fact the most recommended drug to give, above epinephrine. But this has been slowly phased out over time. The 2020 update does not recommend routine use of bicarbon cardiac arrest, and they also note the new evidence that suggests a worsened survival. But sometimes you have to dig a bit deeper than the guidelines to find the truth. Let's talk physiology. Just bear with me for a minute. 
So what does bicarb definitely do? It mops up your hydrogen and then is then converted into carbonic acid and then to carbon dioxide and water. So you have to be able to blow that carbon dioxide off. If you can't blow the carbon dioxide off, you're just switching your patient from a metabolic to a respiratory acidosis. So think carefully about your patient's ventilation when you're giving it. So you increase your pH, but is a pH in isolation so harmful? This is super hard to study because most patients that have a low pH also have concomitant hypoxia, elevated lactate, uremia. You can't really isolate the pH very well. In what studies do exist, when you do isolate at the acidosis, it is not inherently a cardiac depressant. Nor does giving bicarb improve responsiveness to vasopressors. It is a commonly thought and taught concept that if you give a bit of bicarb, your epi will work better. This theory comes from studies on individual cardiac myocytes. But as soon as those become whole heart or whole human studies, it does not pan out. Patients who have their pH artificially raised by bicarb do not need less pressors. But what about hyperkalemia? The bicarb will shift the potassium and boom, you'll get ROSC. Game over. That's a myth. Bolus bicarb does not lower potassium. Numerous studies done show that because of the hypertonicity of bicarb, you get a pull of solutes across the cell just as much as you get potassium shifted in. So some potassium goes in, some potassium gets pulled out. You have net zero your potassium will not go down. This changes a bit with less hypertonic bicarb solutions. An amp of bicarb is 8.4%, the same as 5.8% sodium. How hard do you think before you give 100 mils of 3% sodium? Pretty hard. Well, if you give an amp of bicarb, that is the same sodium load. And that brings us to downsides. We've talked about the sodium load, there's also a fluid load that goes with that. And also, if you're increasing your pH, you're shifting your oxyhemoglobin curve, and that will offload less oxygen. Numerous studies also link bicarb to decreased calcium, and that's fairly robustly linked to a decrease in contractility. And finally, there's this concept of intracellular acidosis. The reason being is that the bicarb you're giving that you're converting to carbon dioxide Sometimes, before you breathe that carbon dioxide out, it will cross cell barriers and your blood-brain barrier. It will then go the other way and turn back into carbonic acid, worsening your intracerebral and intracellular pH. So, from a pathophysiology perspective, bicarb will increase your pH, but the boluses will not lower your potassium. You will add a sodium and a volume load. It will shift your oxygen hemoglobin curve. It will decrease your calcium, and it may lead to intracellular acidosis. So the physiologic consequences of giving bicarb and cardiac arrest, they're mixed at best. But what about the RCTs? What about patient-oriented outcomes? You don't have a cardiac myocyte on the stretcher in front of you. You have a patient whose life you're trying to save. What's the harm? There have been two notable North American studies in cardiac arrest. The first by On Al. They did an RCT of 50 patients, so admittedly, it's small. 
In the patients given bicarb, they found no increase in ROSC nor survival with good neurologic outcome. They did find an increase in pH. That's just not surprising. This probably makes us feel a lot better, but it doesn't make the patient any better. The next study is a study done by Kawano Al out in Vancouver. It's a prospective observational study of thousands of patients. And they found that even when they looked at patients with a long downtime, these are the patients that bicarb is supposed to help that are probably very acidotic. In these patients, bicarb significantly worsened survival. The few studies that suggest some benefit to bicarb are terrible. They have incorrect math, they have no control groups, no patient-centered outcomes. There is no well-done study that shows bicarb improves survival. So what's the bottom line? Studies show a signal for harm. Also, think about your recess economics. When you ask the nurse to give an amp of bicarb, what more effective thing could they be doing with their time? Are there cardiac arrest situations where you should still consider bicarb? Sure. In toxicologic cases, like ASA overdoses or drugs that cause a sodium channel blockade, like TCAs, cocaine, and a host of others. But all comers? No. The next time I'm in the recess room with an arrest that's of unclear etiology, and someone asks me if I want to give an amp of bicarb, I'm going to say no. And you should too. So far, we've explained why colchicine should not be used for COVID pneumonia and why bicarb should not be used routinely for cardiac arrest, only for those specific tox cases that Dr. Myers talked about. Later on in the podcast, we'll be talking about a drug that does have promise for the treatment of frostbite. But now I'd like to hand it over to Britt Long for this month's Best of EM Docs Quick Hit on Troponin and Chronic Kidney Disease. So we all know that renal insufficiency can cause troponitis, making the diagnosis of ACS sometimes difficult in these patients, especially when we don't have a previous troponin to compare to. Let's hear what Dr. Long has to say about the latest on troponin in renal disease. We routinely see patients with chronic kidney disease, or CKD, including those on dialysis, in the ED. These patients can be really challenging, especially if we're evaluating for acute coronary syndrome. And we do need to be concerned about ACS in these patients because it's by far the most common cause of death. In fact, the risk of acute myocardial infarction is over two times greater in patients with CKD compared to other patient populations. To make it even more challenging, patients with CKD also more often present atypically with complaints like fatigue, generalized weakness, and shortness of breath. Our first pitfall is assuming elevated troponin in CKD doesn't represent ACS, but just decreased renal excretion. We can't take an elevated troponin in patients with CKD lightly. Elevated troponin can be present in as many as 70% of patients with CKD who present to the ED, but troponin elevation shouldn't be assumed to be due to renal disease alone. Intact troponin molecules have molecular weights that are close to albumin, which, due to its size, is not typically renally excreted. Smaller troponin subunits may be cleared through the kidney, and there are many reasons why troponin can be elevated in CKD, including uremic skeletal myopathy, microinfarctions, left ventricular hypertrophy, sepsis, PE, and even unrecognized CHF. The major takeaway is that whatever the cause of troponin elevation, 
This elevation is associated with greater risk of poor outcome, including higher mortality rates. As GFR decreases, mortality increases. A 2014 systematic review found a troponin T threshold of 0.1 micrograms per liter in patients with renal disease predicted major cardiac adverse events during hospitalization with a sensitivity and specificity of 43% and 46%. These numbers grow even higher at six months and two years. Our second pitfall is assuming a single troponin can definitively rule in or rule out ACS in all patients with CKD. Granted, if you have a patient with a troponin over your lab cutoff for ACS, a patient with EKG findings consistent with ischemia, or a patient with over a 20% change from a baseline elevated troponin, that patient needs to be admitted. Unfortunately, it's not always that easy. While one study from 2010, including over 280 patients with end-stage renal disease and ACS, found the sensitivity and specificity over 95% for diagnosis of myocardial infarction, most of the literature suggests interpreting troponin levels is very challenging in patients with renal disease. In total, over 150 articles evaluate conventional cardiac troponin testing in patients with renal disease. The problem is, is that many of these studies don't use clear definitions or breakdowns of renal disease. They don't use current troponin assays, they don't use uniform troponin cutoffs, or they have other problems like no gold standard, poor patient matching, and no specified primary outcome. The highest quality literature was evaluated in a systematic review and meta-analysis from 2014. This included six studies evaluating cardiac troponin T and eight studies looking at troponin I. Sensitivity for diagnosis of ACS with troponin T was 71 to 100%, and for troponin I, 43 to 94%. Specificity was 31 to 86% for troponin T and 48 to 100% for troponin I. However, this review didn't include studies with newer troponin assays, and it included studies using a variety of different assays and different criteria for diagnosis of ACS, resulting in significant heterogeneity. What about high-sensitivity troponin? Unfortunately, results are pretty similar with sensitivities all over the board. Based on the current data, using a single troponin has a lot of problems, especially if it's elevated, but it doesn't meet your lab threshold for acute myocardial infarction. If this is the case, repeat a troponin level. Using a second troponin increases your sensitivity and specificity for diagnosis of ACS. If the next troponin measurement is unchanged from the first but still elevated, this is more likely due to chronic myocardial injury, not an acute event. But you need to keep in mind that these patients are still at significant risk of poor outcome with that elevated troponin. In patients without the ischemic symptoms and the elevated troponin, think about other causes of troponin elevation like we talked about. In summary, elevated troponin in patients with renal disease is a marker for worse outcomes. There are many causes for an elevated troponin, and that elevation is not solely due to poor renal function. Be careful using a single troponin to rule in or rule out ACS in these patients. Instead, think about using serial troponins. Thank you, Dr. Long. Next up, we have addictions expert Michelle Clayman. She's going to deliver some key clinical management tips on GHB withdrawal. 
Now, if you've ever seen GHB overdose, it really is amazing just how unresponsive they can become. And the typical course in the ED I found is that a little while after you've tubed them, the ED nurse tells you that they suddenly pulled out the ET tube and ran out of the ED AMA. But Dr. Clayman's not going to talk about overdose. She's going to talk about an even more challenging situation, and that is GHB withdrawal. But before we get into GHB withdrawal management, a message from our sponsor. Metricade is partially tech and partially a professional service. The web-based tool allows me to let Metricade know exactly how I want to be scheduled. The technology and the expert schedules work together to produce a schedule that somehow meets the needs of the department filling every shift while still letting me work more of the shifts I want and fewer of the shifts I don't want. When you have a problem, there's an expert scheduler answering the phone. They know all the intricacies of ED scheduling. This is not an automated push-button schedule. The technology is a tool to help an expert build a schedule to suit your needs exactly. Go see for yourself at metricade.com slash emcases. I work in both the emergency department and the hospital-based rapid access clinic for addiction medicine, a low barrier drop-in clinic for those seeking help for alcohol and substance use. This story starts there. A 35-year-old male presented to the clinic with his partner. He disclosed a history of severe sedative hypnotic use disorder and has been using GHB or gamma-hydroxybutyrate for the past one and a half years. It has disrupted his life significantly, and he has to take a capful every two hours to avoid withdrawal. He even has to set his alarm to wake himself up every two hours overnight. This is because GHB has such a narrow therapeutic window in a short plasma half-life of only 30 to 50 minutes. He was interested in a home detoxification and unwilling to be admitted to hospital or go to the detoxification center. His urine drug screen was negative for all substances, which was expected as GHB is undetectable on urine drug screens. GHB is known as a party drug for its euphoric and sedative effects. It is also used as a date rape drug and in bodybuilders. Physical dependence can develop within as little as one week of regular use. Its unique pharmacological properties make it such an interesting drug as it is initially stimulating, then presents as a mixed sedation and stimulation as a level rise in the blood. GHB targets the GABA-B and GHB receptor. The GABA receptors also bind barbiturates, benzodiazepines, GABA, and ethanol. The withdrawal profile of GHB is therefore much like that of alcohol and benzodiazepine withdrawal. Withdrawal typically develops within the first 6 to 72 hours following cessation of chronic GHB and can last between 48 hours and 15 days. Mild withdrawal involves anxiety, tremor, and insomnia. This can progress to severe with confusion, delirium, psychosis, paranoia, hallucinations, and autonomic instability. It is initially treated with benzodiazepines, which bind primarily to the GABA-A receptor. In the Netherlands, tapering with pharmaceutical GHB has become a strategy to assist with GHB detoxification. However, pharmaceutical GHB is not available from local pharmacies, and this is not a practice we use in Canada. With this in mind, I agreed to trial an outpatient detoxification at home, although the patient was advised that he would likely need to come to hospital. The patient was prescribed diazepam 40 milligrams to taper by 10 milligrams per day, so a total of 10 tabs of 10 milligrams of diazepam. 
His partner agreed to stay with him in case things didn't go as planned. In addition, I prescribed low-dose baclofen, as there is some evidence it can be helpful. On day one, about six hours after his last dose, he developed significant withdrawal symptoms and took all 100 milligrams of diazepam over the following six hours. Despite this, his withdrawal continued. He developed fearful visual hallucinations, nausea and vomiting, became increasingly delirious, and his partner called paramedics. When he arrived to the emergency department, the MD is called to see him immediately as he's extremely agitated and diaphoretic. He is following commands inconsistently. His blood pressure is 150 over 95, heart rate of 140, respirate of 18, and he is afebrile. He is diffusely diaphoretic and has a mild tremor. The remainder of the exam is unremarkable. The doc initiates a 1 liter bullets of normal saline and orders 40 milligrams of diazepam intravenously immediately, then 20 milligrams Q1 hour as needed based on the symptom-driven CWA protocol. He also receives 5 milligrams of Haldol for its antipsychotic effects. Despite this, his agitation continues to escalate. He receives 100 milligram diazepam over about 4 hours. Combined with his home medication, that's 200 milligrams of diazepam. Now, this is not entirely unexpected as benzodiazepines require the presence of GABA to have an effect of the GABA receptor. In GHB withdrawal, patients may have developed depleted levels of GABA, so the patient can eventually develop benzodiazepine-resistant withdrawal. The next best option is to target the barbiturate binding site on the GABA receptor as barbiturates do not require GABA to be effective. The recommended dose varies, but the range of phenobarbital is 150 to 400 milligrams intravenous. The patient receives an initial starting dose of 240 milligrams IV. He was then transferred to the intensive care unit where he received escalating doses of phenobarbital and discharged five days later. Now this case was extreme, But GHB withdrawal is often extreme, and patients often end up in the ICU. Three important take-home points I'd want you to remember are number one, GHB withdrawal is severe and life-threatening. It should ideally be managed in an inpatient setting. Number two, initial treatment is with benzodiazepines and rapid dose escalation is warranted. Number three, For benzodiazepine-resistant withdrawal, quickly move to adjunct therapy, which includes phenobarbital. Thank you very much, Dr. Clayman. Next up, we have a new voice to EM Quick Hits, Dr. Ian Walker, an emergency doc and associate professor of EM at the University of Calgary in Alberta, Canada. Now, winter is over in the Northern Hemisphere, but I'm sure if you work in the Great White North, you saw a patient with frostbite in the ED this past winter. Dr. Walker is going to give us the lowdown on a drug that's been around for a long while, but that hasn't been used much to treat frostbite. And that drug is Iloprost, or Iloprost. The question is, does Iloprost hold promise for the treatment of severe frostbite? A couple of years ago, I was working the morning shift in the middle of a profound cold snap when EMS brought in a 30-year-old homeless man who had fallen asleep while trying to find shelter behind a dumpster. Someone had put a blanket over him at some point, but his feet had wound up uncovered. By morning, he had severe frostbite to the level of his midfoot bilaterally. 
He had remarkably little pain, but his feet were completely white and insensate. We warmed up the feet, but historically we have had very little to offer patients like him, other than analgesia, ASA or NZs for a bit of antiplatelet effect, and wound care. The available literature suggests that this degree of frostbite carries with it a 100% risk of amputation. Sometime earlier, however, we had become aware of the work done by Alex Poole and Josiane Gauthier and Whitehorse on the use of Iloprost for frostbite, and with their guidance had secured a supply of the drug. The patient was instead admitted to our hospital, treated for five days with IV Iloprost, and walked out of hospital less than two weeks later with both feet intact. He was one of several patients treated that way that winter, and although not all were as dramatic, several were. Iloprost is a synthetic prostaglandin, which has been used in Europe for years in the treatment of severe frostbite. It's a vasodilator with indications also for the use in Raynaud's phenomenon and in pulmonary hypertension. It also has some ability to inhibit platelet aggregation. Since much of the damage in frostbite occurs as a result of thrombosed microvasculature, it works by increasing blood flow to tissues and opening up some of those small vessels. Iloprost is still not approved by the FDA in the U.S. and is only available in Canada through Health Canada's special access program. But first really came to the North American attention when an open-label randomized trial was described in a letter to the editor of the New England Journal in 2010. In it, the authors based out of Chamonix, France, describe a total of 47 patients over 12 years, randomized to Iloprost, Iloprost plus IVTPA, or a drug called Bluflomidil, which has subsequently been removed from the market due to safety concerns. In this rather remarkable study, Iloprost alone, or Iloprost with TPA, resulted in near complete avoidance of amputation. For example, in patients with frostbite extending proximal to the MCP or MTP, where amputation rates of 100% would have been expected, the actual rate was 12%. More recently, Dr. Poole published two, a two-patient case series in CMAJ in 2016. Both patients had grade 3 frostbite, were treated with Iloprost, and subsequently had complete recovery. Dr. Poole and Ms. Gauthier did us all a great service by actually publishing their treatment protocol in CMAJ with their cases, and have been remarkably generous in sharing their expertise with people who inquire. Admittedly, the available literature on the topic is thin. So thin, in fact, that when the Cochrane Collaboration published their review of the topic in December 2020, the only study they found worthy of mentioning was the Chamonix one that I just described, and they considered it to be a high risk of bias. That said, this is a condition for which we have very little else to offer our patients, and which carries with it significant morbidity. It is important to keep in mind that pretty much all of the published literature is on healthy, young, outdoor adventurer types who get stuck outside. These are not our patients, however, who are overwhelmingly homeless, older, comorbid, and suffering from significant substance abuse and mental health issues. Ironically, that probably makes our mandate to pursue this even greater given the profound functional impact that the loss of fingers and toes has on these patients and their ability to sustain meaningful employment down the road. With that in mind, we proceeded to develop a new frostbite process, which was largely adopted from the protocol currently in place in Whitehorse. Frostbite patients presenting within 72 hours of rewarming are treated with analgesia, wound care, and medical management varies by grade. For grade one, which only involves the distal phalanx, nothing beyond analgesia and wound care is offered. For patients with grade two and three frostbite, so anything extending proximal to the DIP, Treatments consist of a six-hour infusion of Iloprost daily for five days, the first one of which is given entirely in the ED. For grade four frostbite, or frostbite which extends proximal to the MCPs or MTPs, 
We also treat with IV TPA as a single dose given in the ED and subsequent heparin continued on the ward. There were definitely some logistical challenges getting this up and running, and if any of your listeners want to dig into the nitty-gritty of implementation, they are welcome to email me at ian.walker at ahs.ca. Our experience thus far, however, would suggest that the hassle was worth it. Two of our residents, Sean Crooks and Brett Shaw, have completed an observational study of our frostbite patients over the past two winters as Isloprost was introduced to local use. During that time, we identified 90 consecutive patients with grade 2 to 4 frostbite, of whom 26 were treated with Isloprost and 64 were not. Over 30% of the patients were homeless and 50% were intoxicated at the time of injury. For grade 2 frostbite, i.e. cases that don't extend past the PIP, amputation rates in both groups were 0%. In grade 3 frostbite, amputation rates were 42% in the Isloprost group and 71% in the standard therapy group, for a number needed to treat of just over 3 In grade 4 frostbite, extending past the MCP or MTP, amputation rates were 80% versus 100%, but the p-value on that difference was not significant. Our results are certainly less impressive than the ones published in that RCT out of Chamonix, but apply to a much different patient population and lend further support to the idea that this is an effective therapy for a condition for which we have very little else to offer. In sum, my take-home points for the working doc would be this. Isloprost is indicated in severe frostbite that would otherwise be at risk of amputation and presenting within 72 hours of rewarming. It is given by IV infusion six hours a day for five days. It appears to have a significant impact on lowering amputation rates even in the more severely affected patients. In particularly severe cases, it can be combined with IV TPA. And if you want to have it in your hospital, get in touch with someone who is already using it so they can walk you through the process of obtaining access. That's it. That's your quick hits for Isloprost in severe frostbite. Last but not least, we have Sarah Reed, our PDM guru, who's going to give us her tips on avoiding patient and parent complaints. This stuff is gold. One of my jobs in the Emerge where I work is to work with the hospital patient experience service, um, and that's to talk to parents when they have concerns or com- a complaint about the care their child has received. And I've definitely noticed over the last couple of years that there are some themes that emerge. So that's what we're going to talk about today. And, you know, complaints can happen to everyone. I'm sure we've all had at least one. And that can happen even when you're trying your absolute best, because I think sometimes emerge sets us up. Um, We're in a position where even when we are doing our absolute best, we just can't win. There's these ridiculous gaps in healthcare, and patients are frustrated they come in with expectations that we're just not going to be able to meet. There's overcrowding, there's acuity, like just a lot of challenges. Um, but I think that there's a few things that we can do to, to minimize our, our risk of complaints. So the, the first thing is the most common complaint that I hear is the parent will report that they felt dismissed or the doctor made them feel stupid. And so this has a lot to do with the tone that we take and whether they perceive that we care and that we're concerned. And that can be tough, especially when we're rushed And, you know, they're presenting with like a low acuity issue where, you know, the parent is very concerned, but we're like feeling like the kid is totally well. So it's an emergency to them, but not to us. And I think we need to really remember that parental anxiety has uh, never been higher. Like there's been a huge societal shift since I started practice. And so we just need to meet people where they're at. For us to prevent this kind of I felt dismissed business is to check yourself before you go into the patient's room. So if you're already exasperated that's going to come across. I think it's important to validate the parent's feelings. So, you know, 
I can see that you're worried. What are you most worried about? I want to make sure that you feel reassured. Because we just really need to remember that they're worried even when we're not. Often these types of visits, you know, our goal is to actually help to educate them so they're able to manage issues at home in the future. So just take some time to do that. And if you're seeing a patient who has a more chronic issue, like they've got chronic abdominal pain and it's been going on for a long time, but like today's the day they're going to get it solved and emerge. I think it's important to sort of frame the visit by saying, you know, let's rule out the serious causes for this abdominal pain today. And then we're going to make sure you have really good follow-up. And that can set the tone for the visit. So you're taking it seriously, but you are also upfront about the limitations of eMERGE. Likewise, with a a feverish patient, you can say, you know, we know that more than 90% of fevers in immunized children are due to viruses, but we're going to do a full history and physical to make sure that we don't need to do anything else or treat with antibiotics. And then they see you do that full exam and they see you're being thorough. Second thing is that you we need to, I think, be careful about saying that you're 100% sure about anything. Many parents, when um, the complaint is around a a diagnostic error, will recall that at some point during the initial assessment or subsequent assessments, the doctor said, I'm 100% sure it's not X, Y, or Z. And then, of course, it ends up being X, Y, or Z. And you can imagine when that happens, the trust in the profession really takes a nosedive, understandably. So it's probably better to just avoid 100%. Even, you know, I mean, there are some things that we can be really sure about, but a lot of the time there's gray. And so, just better to frame it like we've assessed for these serious causes by doing our history and our physical and the tests that we did today. These are the things that I'm going to want you to watch for. And this is how you're going to seek care or when you should seek care and just make sure that's all documented. Third thing is, I think with the EMRs, sometimes it can come off that you sort of breeze in, you go right to the EMR and start typing and you don't really establish a rapport with the parent or the child. So I would recommend starting the visit off right. Just remember that parents are entrusting you with their most precious thing, this little kid, and how you treat the child, it makes such a difference. You know, get take a minute to get down to the toddler's level, speak gently to the baby. You know, when a child is sick, you know, even just a statement like poor little guy or, you know, empathize with the parent. Remember, you know, that this parent may have been up the last three nights not sleeping because the child is sick, even though they're not, you know, maybe they just have a cold, but they may be completely sleep deprived. And so just making taking the time to do those little pieces really set you up for success and, and build that therapeutic alliance. If you sense that the visit's not going well and that there's some conflict in what you're doing and what the parental expectations are, it's great if you can sort of stop and check in and try and address it then and there. And that can sometimes prevent the complaint, right? So using questions like, is there something else that you were worried about? What other questions do you have for me? Was there something else that you were expecting from this visit? That's sometimes a helpful way to see if you can bridge the gap. And that's, you know, preventing problems down the road. I would say about parents of patients with medical complexity or chronic illnesses, that they are really the experts in their child. And often they have incredible expertise about what is a very rare diagnosis that you might not even ever have heard about. So this is not a group to be paternalistic with or to sort of uh, really feel like you kind of have a that I know everything attitude. Shared decision making is paramount with this group. And so ask them what they think is going on. Has this happened before? What works, what doesn't? 
you're dealing with a child with autism. How is it best for me to approach your child to do a physical examination? What can we do to optimize this? They're on your team and so use them. The last one is kind of a funny one that I wouldn't have thought of before I started doing the patient experience work is beware of the benevolent smile, especially if um, the parent is upset. So again, this is just us having to be aware of our body language and our facial expression. You know, you may think that you're sort of adopting a calm, kind attitude if a, when a parent is upset, but they may perceive, and I've seen this a few times at least, that with that smiling face that you're mocking them or you're laughing at them. So you have to be congruent with what their emotion is. So if you sense that they're upset and, you know, disappointed with the visit and it's starting to be a, like a hard conversation, just check yourself and just make sure your facial expression and your body language sort of reflects that and just um, be aware that that is something that uh, a bit of a pitfall that sometimes you can fall into if, if you tend to smile in that kind of situation. So lastly, you know, this is, we hear this all the time, but as much as possible, just if you think, you know, that it was a difficult interaction taking the time to really document the conversation and what you were thinking and uh, the work that you did to try and optimize the visit is really important and really helpful down the road in case uh, there is a complaint that needs to be looked into. And here's the review. First, Colchicine for COVID. Morgan Stern says, so far, no role. What about IV bicarb and cardiac arrest? Dr. Myers explained how it is indicated for sodium channel blockade overdose and ASA overdose, but it should not be used routinely in cardiac arrests because it probably causes more harm than good. Dr. Long reminded us to be careful when interpreting troponin in the setting of CKD. Regardless of why the troponin is high, ACS or not, those patients are at high risk for badness and serial troponins are your friend. Dr. Clayman described a hairy case of GHB withdrawal and told us that tolerance and physical dependence develops very quickly within seven days. It is undetectable in standard urine drug screens, and the treatment is similar to alcohol withdrawal, although it's ideally managed in an inpatient setting. And like alcohol withdrawal, the treatment is first with benzodiazepines on a CWA protocol. You can use baclofen as an adjunct, and if none of that is working, then you move on to phenobarbital. Dr. Walker gave us the lowdown on Iloprost for frostbite, which doesn't have great evidence, but is probably worth a try based on observational data. We'll have an example of a protocol for Iloprost in the show notes. And when it comes to avoiding patient and parent complaints, Dr. Reed reminded us to check your mood before entering the room, validate their feelings and concerns, set the tone for the visit, Avoid telling them that you are 100% sure about anything. Be aware of your body language and facial expression. And that shared decision-making is especially important in patients with chronic complex illnesses. For the next main EM Cases podcast, that'll be released two weeks after this one, we have the mighty return of master electrophysiologist Dr. Paul Dorian, plus EM educator extraordinaire Tarlin Hedeyadi from Chicago, and we're going to give you a great approach to the patient with bradycardia. We'll dig into some of the nuances of treatment, pacing, and resuscitation. And just before we go, it looks like we're going to have the first ever virtual EM Cases conference in November with the best EM speakers in the world who have been on EM Cases, procedural videos, and lots of surprises too. So save the dates, November 11th, 12th, and 13th. 
Until next time, take it easy. Take it easy.